Let's uh, pray with me, if you would, before we begin. We're going to open God's word together, but let's pray first. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this day. I thank you for each one that you've brought here. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you for the gift of your son, that we can come directly to you through what you've done for us in prayer, that your spirit is dwelling amongst us because of what Jesus has done for us, that you are leading and guiding us. And we just pray as we open your word that you would teach us, that you would uh, convict us, you would encourage us this morning through your word, that you would help us to see more fully who you are and what you've done for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I don't know how many of you like to watch... uh, the Olympics or uh, sporting events like that, but uh, with the Winter Olympics just being on, it's kind of fresh on my mind. And when you watch those telecasts and you start to watch that, they really like to build up the story behind the athletes. And it makes sense. It makes for compelling television if you're watching it. They want you to know a little bit about the person who's competing, and then it gives you somebody to root for and you like. And so what they'll often do is they'll build up somebody who's kind of like the underdog who overcame some great tragedy or different things. And we like that. We like those stories. And so they do that. We like when it's kind of an unlikely hero that they kind of build up and then you see them perform at a really high level and they do great and you can cheer for them and it's wonderful. We like that in a lot of ways. We like that uh, in stories. We like it in movies. Uh, Growing up, one of my favorite movies, uh, going back to being a little boy, was the whole Rocky film series, right? The, The boxer who came out of nowhere to win the championship. And when I was a kid, it was like the greatest thing, Rocky. Balboa that came from the streets and and, and part of that was because my dad told me that he was Rocky and so for a little while in there it was like yeah well that's that's my dad because he told me that my parents lived in Philadelphia way back and so he used to jokingly say that that was him and so uh, love those kind of movies we also like movies where we see uh, redemption where it's somebody who really turns uh, maybe an evil character and then suddenly along the way Things change and they, they seem to get on the right path and things go well. And so we like that in films, uh, it, uh, even in kids' films. Those, those of you who have children or grandchildren will know exactly what I'm talking about. Those who don't or are not in that right now will have a, not a clue what I'm talking about. But there's a movie called Despicable Me. My kids love this movie. And in the movie, the main character is just evil and he's awful and he's horrible and he's all these things. It's an animated movie. But then uh, it's not like a real horrible <laughs> If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're like, great, what is he letting his kids watch? But he's this kind of ugly guy who then these these orphans come into his life and it totally changes them. And it's a really sweet story of what that turnaround and and, and what happens. And so uh, we like those kind of stories. We like when we see the unlikely person become the hero. We like when we see God use someone that you don't often suspect that he'll use. And so as we go back into Judges today, we've been in the book of Judges for several weeks now. We're going to go back in and we're going to look in Judges chapter 11. And if you want to follow along, if you need a Bible, there's Bibles in the pew. If you want to follow along with us there, we'll be on page 136. That's where Judges 11 is in the pew Bibles. Try to say this every week when I remember if you're here and you need a Bible and you don't have one, you're free to take one of those. We'd love for you to take one of those if you need one or if you know someone that could use one and you'd like to take it to them. Feel free to do that. We'd love for you to do that. But we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 11. And in that chapter, we're going to be introduced to a guy that's kind of an unlikely hero in a lot of sorts. He has some some baggage. He has some contradictions in his life. Even as God calls him and uses him, he makes some pretty grievous mistakes along the way. 
But all throughout this, you see God's still using him. And it's a wonderful picture. And it's kind of what we like in those movies that we talk about and the different things we talk about, that God can use all sorts of different people. He can use unlikely people for his glory and for his purposes. And so we're going to look at this guy that we're introduced to in Judges chapter 11, whose name is Jephthah. And we're going to look at him today and think a little bit about that picture. And we'll see as we walk through with his life, the mistakes, the victories, Uh, The sins, the consequences, the problems. But overall, I think the story is very encouraging because as we look at it, we see someone who's flawed and who makes mistakes and yet God still chooses to use. And that's very encouraging to me. I I think it would be with you as well when we start to think about that, that we've made mistakes and we do different things along the way. But yet God is faithful. And so we're going to look at that picture. And so there's three things that I want to just point out to you and we'll walk through and I'll show you, uh, hopefully show you real clearly in Judges 11. But really two things and then how we can learn from that. But the first thing simply is that God can and does use all different sorts of people. God can use anyone. And we see that real clearly in this story in Judges. And although God can use anyone, the second thing I want us to look at is although he can use anyone, what we believe about God matters. God can use anyone, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what we think about who God is. That's very important. And we're going to see that play out in the life of Jephthah. And so God can use anyone. But what we believe about God matters. And then lastly, we'll take those two and look at it and say, what can we learn? What can we take away from what we see in Jephthah's life and the way God's moving in it? And so we're going to jump into to Judges 11. But like I talked about last week, sometimes we're, we're skipping ahead parts in Judges. We're not taking every single verse. And so we're really kind of glossing over chapter 10. But that's a bridge between where we were last week and where we are this week. And so I need to at least set the context, especially if you haven't been here as we're walking through Judges, just to kind of get you where we are. But what we see in Judges is cycles of sin over and over. It's been saying this every week. Uh, you'll see the people of Israel, God's chosen people, he's put in the land. They were clear directions. They are to drive out all the, the idol worship and the pagan worship, and they don't do it. They allow those people to see, stay in with them. They integrate with them, and it causes all kinds of problems. And we see this cycle go over and over. They begin to worship idols. Uh, God allows other countries to come in and conquer them. Then they cry out to God. They, they, They turn back to him. They repent. And then God graciously renews this whole thing with them. And then they do it again. And we see it over and over. And what we saw last time in Judges 9 is we looked at probably... The most evil king that we see, the the tyrant of Abimelech. And he wasn't God's chosen man. In fact, he jumps up and grabs the power and we see the disastrous effects of that. But even though as bad as that was and all the evil that comes through that, we get to the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. And it tells us that even though the people were not seeking God, he raises up judges. He raises up two good judges. And for 45 years, they have relative peace. And so things get better. And they begin to serve God and to follow him. But then you get to the middle of chapter 10 and a very familiar refrain. It says the people of the Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the God of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistine. And they forsook the Lord and they did not serve him. And so you see the exact same thing happen again. And in 10, there's really just kind of a back and forth between God. Things get bad. God allows another country to come in to conquer them. Then they cry out. God sees through it that they just want uh, him to fix things. They don't actually want him. And he says, well, go cry to your other gods. 
You've chosen to serve them. Go cry to your gods. And then finally they come to true repentance in chapter 10 and they say, do whatever you will with us. And they get to a point where they say, we need you, God, so do what you will. And so they cry out and you see a true repentance. And that's kind of the background of what we move into chapter 11. That's the bridge between 9 and 11. And so we're going to look at chapter 11 where we're introduced to this kind of unlikely uh, judge that God's going to use named Jephthah. So if you would look at me, look with me at uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Now it says, now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior and he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have inheritance in your father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah, and he went out with them. And so the picture that you see here is that Jephthah has been estranged from his family. Uh, he grows up in a family in which he's kind of the, the illegitimate son, says he's the son of a prostitute. He has these brothers that all have the same mother and they kick him out. He's estranged from them. And it says he goes out and he begins to hang around with some uh, not a great crowd. And it says he went out with them. Now, it's kind of vague what it tells us. But in the context of the story, it seems to suggest that Jephthah went out and started to go and hang around with a bad crowd and he'd go out and uh, maybe make his living uh, illegally. That's kind of what the connotation is there. He would hang out with these guys. He would go with them. He would do these things because he got a reputation of being a great warrior. So he and these bad characters he was hanging out with were going out and doing something that was proving he was a great warrior. We don't know exactly what it is, but the picture is it's a little shady, his past. In fact, when you read chapter 9 and then you read chapter 11, chapter 9 we looked at last week, where we looked at the evil king Abimelech, you see a lot of similarities to Jephthah. He's, he's not uh, on speaking terms with his family. The same with Abimelech. He was off away from his brothers. Now, Abimelech was a lot harsher. He actually went and killed all his brothers. Right? We saw the evil of his power hungry. Jephthah doesn't do that, but he is uh, estranged from his family. The same thing it told us about Abimelech, that he's hanging around with a bad group of guys and what he's doing. It's the same thing here with Jephthah. And so when you start to get this picture, when we're first introduced to Jephthah, it could raise some red flags that this sounds a lot like Abimelech, which turned out really, really bad. And so you start to see as we're introduced to him that maybe that's the case. But look what happens. Look at verse four. And so after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah to, to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, do you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, this is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over the, all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, I will bring, uh, if you bring me home against, again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And so the elders said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. And so they go and they recruit him to be the judge, to be the political leader, the military leader, to help 
save them from the land and what's going on. And so they go and they get him and they see him. And the reason they say, it, it tells us right in there, he says, well, why do you want me? You guys kick me out. My brothers kicked me out. I'm estranged from my family. Why would you come to me? And they say, we need you to fight. You're a mighty warrior. We need your help. If we're going to be saved from this, we need you. We need the guy that knows what he's doing, that knows how to fight. And so what you see part of the picture there is they come and they get him and they recruit him just because he's got a reputation of being a tough guy. We need you. It makes sense if you need a military leader that you would go get the guy that's whipping up on everybody. Yes, I want that guy. And so they go and they get him. And so the beginning of the story, you get to this point and you don't really know about Jephthah. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of shady things in his background that make you go, man, this could go really, really bad. This could be Abimelech part two. Very easily when you look at it, just on the surface when we get to this point. But the further you read on, you start to see that Jephthah, even though he comes from a shady background, even though he's hanging out with the wrong crowd, even though he's most likely making his living uh, as a criminal or some kind of underhanded way, uh, we start to see that God is using him. And so what you see is they recruit him and he comes in. And the first thing he does is you read down after that. If you read from 12 on, you start to see that Jephthah's first thing that he does is he goes to the people that are oppressing Israel and he tries diplomacy. Do we really have to fight here? He starts to ask them, what's going on? Do we really have to go to war? He starts to try uh, to be a politician in some sense, but he's going to try to, to ease the tensions and not go to war. And so already we see something very different than Abimelech. Abimelech would have already killed a lot of people by this point. But Jephthah kind of steps back and he goes through this process. And as he does, and as he begins to to try to, to ease the tensions that are there, you see a few things. You start to see a little bit of Jephthah's heart in the way he talks. You even see it when the elders first come to him and recruit him to be their leader. Look at the first thing he says there in, in uh, verse 9. So they come to him, and this is eleven nine, and they say, we want you to be your leader. And Jephthah says to the elders, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And so you see even right there that Jephthah has the view that if we're going to win this battle, it's going to be because God gives it to us. Right? He says that. If the Lord gives them into our hand, then I will be the head over you. And so he places it kind of in God's hands. And so you start to go, okay, well, maybe there's a glimmer of hope with Jephthah here. But then as you read on, look at verse 21. And again, this is him talking to the surrounding nations, trying to ease the tensions. But look at what he says in verse 21. He says, the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated him. And so what he's doing there is he's telling them a history lesson of all that's happened. And he says the same thing again. God gave this land into the hand of Israel. God did this. And he actually is saying to them is that God gave this land into our hands. And so you're really opposing God here if you're going to oppose me. Look at verse 27. It says it very similarly. He says, I have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. And so what he says is to these people is that if you're sure you want to go to war, this will be God's decision. God's going to decide who wins. And so what we start to see with Jephthah's heart is that he has a real faith. He's putting his faith in God, not in himself. He's saying, if this is going to work, it's going to be God's doing, not my doing. And so we start to see this picture of Jephthah that, uh, that emerges there. 
He's seeking diplomacy. He's not just going straight to war. He's trying to ease the tensions. He's telling them that this is all God's doing. And you see that over and over. And so then uh, the people won't have any of it. The surrounding nations, they're going to war. They don't really care what he says, even though he did the right thing in trying to ease the tensions. And so look at what happens in verse 29. It says, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And then look at what it says in verse 33. And he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow so that the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And so the picture that we see and the first point I want you to see is that God can use anyone. Jephthah's a mess. He's got a lot of baggage. He's got a lot of things that make you go, he's a little bit shady. I'm not really sure about this, but yet he follows God. He seeks him. He says, this will be God that will do this work if this is ever going to happen. He continues to remind people. And then it says, God gave him his spirit. The spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah and they went out and they won. And they won great battles. And so what you see is that God is using him And I want you to be encouraged when you hear this and when you see this story. We see this story similarly over and over and over again in Scripture. God chooses a lot of very unlikely people. A lot of people that oftentimes seem like there is no way that God is going to work there. You can go all the way through. Think of Moses. Moses was a murderer. A murderer that went and hid for 40 years in the wilderness. And God says, "You're, you're my guy. Paul. Literally persecuting the church, killing people until God gets a hold of him and turns him around and becomes the greatest evangelist in the history of the church. And so you see this all the way through Scripture that God can use anyone. And so that should be a great encouragement to you wherever you are, whatever mistakes you've made, wherever you've been starting today, God can use you. If you're willing to follow him and follow hard after him and put your hands in his life and in what he's doing and following him, he can use you. It should also give you a great comfort in the people that are in your life that seem very far from God. God can get anyone. He can turn anyone's heart at any time. And so there's no one in your life that you should just throw up your hands and go, ah, hopeless. God can use anyone. And so that's the first thing I want us to see. But the second thing, and there's a really important lesson here with Jephthah. Even though God can and does use anyone, what we believe about God matters. Now, Jephthah, what we see is he has a real faith. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we hit uh, through Judges and we talked about Gideon. And he's very shaky at the end of his life. He's kind of up and down. Jephthah makes some real serious mistakes we're going to look at in just a second. But with Gideon and with Jephthah, both Hebrews 11 tells us both that they were faithful. And what that means is they both trusted God. They both had a saving faith in God's promises and what he was going to do. And even though they're not perfect, they were still saved. God still had them. And so that should be a great encouragement as well. We can blow it and we make mistakes and we have missteps, but yet God is still faithful. And so we see that even with Jephthah. And so look at this picture here. It matters what we believe about God. And as we move into this idea and we see Jephthah, we see that God's spirit is on him. God is working in his life. Great things are happening. But his discipleship, we use that word a lot. His discipleship's not over. And I want you to think about that for just a second. What discipleship actually means. We want to be disciples of Jesus. That means coming uh, into complete obedience to Jesus. 
And so I want you to think about that for a second. Uh, The way I would define it is this. Discipleship is a lifelong process of seeking to make every area of your life, every single area of your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Guess what? That's going to take your whole life. And it's not going to be complete until Jesus returns. And so even with Jephthah, even though God is using him, even though he has a real faith, even though God's working through him, he's got a long way to go. It's the same with all of us. Look at what happens here with Jephthah. Go back to verse 29. So it says the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he starts to go out. And then verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Look at verse 34. Then Jephthah came home. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dancing, and she was his only child. And beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot break my vow. So you see what he just said. He stood up and he said, "Okay, we're going to battle. And God, I will give I will offer the first thing that comes out of my house if you give me this victory. He goes, he gets the victory, he returns home and the daughter comes out and he's just heartbroken. But then you read down at the end of the chapter and the daughter says to him, you do what you have to do. You made a vow to God. And so she goes off and mourns. He allows her to go for two months. But then you get to the very end of this picture and look at verse 38. He sent her away for two months and she departed with her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel. And so the picture here, I want you just to ask for a second, what in the world is going on? This man who has a faith in God, who's trusting in God, who God's working through his life, he's doing things, makes this terrible vow, and then he follows through on it. He kills his own daughter. He offers her as a sacrifice and he follows through. And you go, what in the world is going on? And the important thing that I want you to see here is that Jephthah had a really poor theology. He had a very poor understanding of who God is. He didn't really get the picture of what would please God and what that looks like. And when I use words like theology, a lot of times people go, oh, theology. That's so boring. Or or his doctrine was really poor. We talk about theology and doctrine and most people's eyes glaze over. Oh, you've got to be kidding. He's going to talk about theology and doctrine. But, But the point that I want you to think about is that every single person here. See, a lot of times people will say, I don't really care about theology and doctrine. I just want to love the Lord. I just want to love people. That's not all that important. But the picture here that I want you to see is that every single person sitting here You are living out of your theology and you have one. Whether you realize it or not, you have deep seated beliefs about what you think about God and who he is and what it looks like to serve him. And that informs the way you live. And so you can say, well, I don't really care about theology. But the point is, you're living out of your theology. Theology is just what you think about God, the way you know God. And so all of us are living out of a theology. People will oftentimes say things like, I just want to love Jesus. That's a great thought. I just want to love Jesus. 
But the question I would ask is, who is he and why do you love him? Your theology answers those questions. You have to have some basis of who he is and why you love him and what would please him and what that would look like. Or people will say, I just want to live for God. And the question will be, well, which God are you talking about? The God of the Bible? The God who is the creator and redeemer that's revealed himself in Scripture or somebody else? Because if it's somebody else, then you're worshiping what the Bible would call as an idol because you're not actually worshiping God. And so what you think about God is very important. Your theology matters. What you see here in this picture is that Jephthah had huge holes in his theology that led him to do some really terrible things. One making a vow to God, one killing his own daughter. And so when we start to do that, and and by the way, When we get in these pictures, it's so easy to read that and go, what is wrong with this guy? I would never, you know, I wouldn't do that. I can't believe he's he's doing this. What was he thinking? But the truth is, if we're really honest, each and every one of us has holes in our theology. No one sitting here has a perfect theology. No one. Me included. I'll be the first to admit my theology has holes in it. There's things I'm not sure about. There's things I'm wrestling with. There's things that I just don't know. Just ignorant of. And so none of us has a perfect theology. And the good news is that you're not saved by having a perfect theology. Now, there are very, very important doctrines, that is, beliefs that the Bible tells us, that are absolutely essential to your salvation. But you're not saved by having every single perfect thing in a category and knowing every one of it. But that doesn't mean they're not important. And so even what you see here in this picture is that Jephthah makes some really bad decisions based on uh, his understanding of who God is, the holes in his theology. And it's important for us to seek to know God in the way that he's revealed himself. It's commands and scriptures over and over. Uh, Romans 12, be renewed by the transformation of your mind. Right, what I read to you just a minute ago, right? I said, notice how Jesus answers their objections. He answers it with Scripture. It's the way he answered everything that people came at him. Well, you don't know the Scriptures. That's why you're asking this question. And so he immediately quotes Scripture back to him. If you read through, through the, uh, the Gospels and just look at the way Jesus looks at Scripture, it's overwhelming how much he cared about the Word and how much he knew God's Word Uh, I said this in Sunday school this morning, but I read a wonderful quote this week that goes right to the heart of this. It says, if Jesus didn't think he could handle life without knowing the scriptures inside and out, what makes you think you can? Jesus knew the Bible better than anyone. And so God's revealed himself to us through his word. That's how we know him. That's how we know our theology. That's how we know who God is. By the way, he's revealed himself and that's through his word. And so the problem becomes what happened with Jephthah. Now, part of it you can look at and go, Old Testament, he only had part of the Bible. That's true. I think sometimes we're so hard and we read read this and we go, how in the world could he have done that? We don't understand his culture and what he was in and what he had. And that's part of it. But that's not an excuse here. They had the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy, written a couple hundred years before Jephthah, is uh, the, the last of the five, the first five. Moses wrote those. Deuteronomy is a summary of all that God's doing and commands and telling them. Well, in Deuteronomy 12, it actually says that you shouldn't offer your children as sacrifices because that's detestable to God. 
And so Jephthah had God's revelation of what this looks like and how he should proceed right in front of him. And he just didn't know God's word. And so the question becomes, why? How in the world did he get to that point? And here's the scary part. And I think this is the case a lot of times in our culture today. The really scary part is that Jephthah's theology was more concerned about what his predominant culture said than what God's word said. And so when we say, well, I don't really care about theology, it's not that important. What you're saying is my discipleship, I'm just going to kind of float along and hope that I grow closer to God. But this is the scary part. You will be discipled by your culture. If it's not by God's word, it will be by the culture. That's exactly what happened with Jephthah. Why in the world would he would think it's a good idea to sacrifice his daughter? That's what they did in Cana. That was the ultimate sign of devotion. You want to show your devotion to your pagan God and you try everything else and that doesn't work. Then you sacrifice your children. And that's why God said you make sure you drive them out and you take no part in that because it's detestable to me. And so the picture that emerges here and what we see is that what you believe about God matters. Your theology matters. Jephthah was living out of his poor theology and it led to horrible, horrible things. His poor grasp of God's word, letting his culture stand over, not what God's word says. And it leads to this. And so that takes us to the last part. What do we learn from this story? It's a pretty horrible story when you get to the end. That Jephthah did all these good things and God used him and he's working and all these things. But then he sacrifices his daughter. And he thinks, I've got to do this to honor God because I made this vow. And so what do we learn from this story? Well, there's two grievous errors he makes, and they're both pretty obvious, I think. The first, probably the most obvious, is that he kills his own daughter. It's a pretty awful thought. And so what you see is that bad theology, bad understanding of who God is, has disastrous consequences. When we're seeking to honor God in ways that he hasn't told us, we're really going against what he says. And there's all kinds of consequences that come from that. We talked about that the very first week in Judges. When we let our common sense stand over what God's word clearly says, the end of that is bad. That's exactly what happens here. Remember, I said it just a few minutes ago, we all have holes in our theology. And so it should give us a humility when we talk about these things. It's not a a warrant of saying, well, if you have good theology, then you can look down on the people who have bad theology. That's actually really bad theology. (laughs) You're misunderstanding your theology if you then begin to do that. Let me just give you one example when I say it has disastrous effects in our life, a practical example. I said at the beginning, sometimes we'll see somebody and we'll say, God couldn't change them. I don't know how that would work. They are so far uh, opposed to God. Or we say things like that would be a really big job if God was going to get them. He'd really have to do a lot to save that guy. Have you ever thought that? You ever said that maybe? Maybe you haven't said it, but you've thought it in your mind. And I want you just to think about that for a second. Because the connotation being is that God would have to put in a whole lot of extra work to save that guy over there. You, You see what we're saying? He didn't have to work as hard on me, but he'd have to work really hard on him. That's really, really bad theology. 
Because what it says is it says, I misunderstand who I am apart from Christ, which is I am a sinner who is dead in my trespasses and I have nothing to offer except what God has done for me. And so there's no way I can start to look down on that guy over there. That just means that I've misunderstood who I am and my theology of understanding of my own sin is is off. And not only that, it misunderstands who God is. Right? That God would have to work really hard to do that over there. The creator that holds all things together by the power of his word and he couldn't do that. Both of those are bad on either side. And we do those type of things all the time. And we begin to think that way. And it's a misunderstanding of who God is. And there's disastrous consequences. And the disastrous consequences are the people that Jesus was so adamantly opposed to when he was on this earth. Hypocrites. People that go, look at me, I'm so self-righteous. And you go, you don't know what you're talking about. And we can slip into that thinking that I'm saved by look at how good I am. And you know how obnoxious that is to somebody who doesn't understand? How horrible that looks. It makes us into self-righteous people that walk around looking down on people. It has disastrous consequences. People go, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And now, it takes God to open their eyes to truly see that. When we proclaim the gospel, it will be offensive at different times, but you don't want to be the offense. Let the gospel, God's word, be the offense, not you. And so it's important for us to see. That's a very practical example of what that looks like when our theology is off. But then there's a second lesson here, and these really go together, but it's really important that we see. It's maybe a little less obvious, but it's vitally important. Yes, Jephthah killed his daughter, but the problem underneath that, that's the outworking of his heart, what was going on. What was the problem underneath it? The problem underneath it was that he made a vow to begin with. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. I'll offer whatever comes out the door and you just give me this victory. What's underneath that? I want you to think about that for a second, what he's saying. We do that all the time in different ways. You may not even realize it. You get up and you overslept and you forget to have your quiet time and your days hurried and you go about it and you get to the end of the day and you go, oh, I'm terrible. I can't believe I forgot to do this and I blew it here and I did this. And you walk through life thinking God loves you less because you didn't do these things. Or you get up really early and you read your Bible and you pray and you do all these things and then you stick your chest out and go, look at me. Look at what I did today. God really is pleased with me today. It's the exact same thing Jephthah's doing here. He's making his worth a bargain with God. I'll do this for you, God, and you do this for me. The bottom of that is a works-based righteousness. I earn my worth before God by how well I'm doing today. We, we struggle with that every single day. It's our sinful heart. We want to make it all about what we do and what that looks like. And so the problem that he has here is a fundamental misunderstanding of the way God loves us and the way God works. And this is such wonderful good news. Our relationship with God, God's love for us, is not ultimately, thankfully, wonderfully, marvelously not based on our performance, but his love and his grace. See, Jephthah thought, I've got to do this so God will give me this. You are saved by no doing of your own except 
admitting, I can't do this. It's all God and it's all grace and it's all Christ and that's it. And so when we begin to fundamentally walk out, hey, God, I will do this for you if you do this for me. God's going, hello, I love you completely and totally already because of what Jesus has done. You can't make me love you anymore. But yet we operate that way all the time. I'll do this if you do this. And God's going, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. And see, when that happens, we begin to do silly things like I've got to do this to make God now love me. And really, that's not pleasing to God, because what you're doing is you're using him. I'll do these things for you and then you'll do these things for me and we'll. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. But the truth is, God loves you completely and totally. He wants you to live out of the overflow of what He's already done for you, as opposed to earning. And so that's the problem here with Jephthah. Now, we've talked a lot about the idea of what you believe about God is so very important, and it is. And theology is important. I think the doctrines of what Scripture tells us about who we are and who God is and how salvation works. And all those things are very important. And you can say, okay, well, what's the answer? Should we all enroll in systematic theology together? And we'll walk through... I don't think that's a bad idea, actually. (laughs) We've actually had systematic theology class here. And so if you'd like to do that, we'll do that again. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because that's how we know how God's revealed Himself, and that's not a bad thing. But I think there's something much deeper than that. See, what happens, and we're going to end with this, is we'll start to talk about theology and doctrine. And people will start to slip into this thinking we need to get to the really heavy, serious things. And a lot of people in their mind think, well, that means we're going to learn all the names of the people in the Bible. Or we're going to go and we're going to study uh, Revelation and we're going to try to figure out every single thing that is there and make sure we know what it points to and what it means. And we'll talk about that and that'll be really deep. That'll be the real meat of the word. We'll get into those things. But the truth is the meat of the word is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God has come down and he saved you by no doing of your own and he's given it to you as a gift by grace and you put your faith in him. The meat is applying that to every part of your life. And that happens together. Yes, you study. Yes, you spend time in the word. Yes, you think about who God is. Yes, you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. But then you're going to go out and start to walk it out and you're going to immediately go back to I'm having a bad day because I didn't have a quiet time. And you need other people around you to go, no, 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 you are completely accepted and loved by God because of what Jesus has done and it's not you. We need to apply it to every area of our life. And that happens together as we go along in our lives. The deepest, most uh, important doctrine, the heart of all of it, the foundation, is that you are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. And we have to go back to that over and over and over again. And even the other doctrines and things that are important have to come out of an overflow of that. That's what Jephthah's problem was. He forgot the most fundamental part. He missed the part that God loves me and He's got me and it's not dependent on me. And so we have to be reminded of that over and over and over again. And so thankfully, it's God's grace. Thankfully, even though we blow it, Even though we make mistakes, even though we don't see it, even though we don't apply it right, He still loves us. And He still got us and it's still His doing. And so we need to be reminded over and over. That's the wonderful good news of the God that we serve. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that even in this story, we see how you use people that are far away from you, that have made silly mistakes and continue to make mistakes, but yet you are faithful and you're walking with them and bringing them back and loving them. And I thank you that that's really the story of each one of us. Even though we've made many mistakes and even though we turn from you, that you are consistently there loving and caring for us. I pray that you would help us to take seriously knowing you, seeking to know you more, helping one another to know you more. We pray that you would just work in us and through us together for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.